Sunday Dispatch. You're listening to the Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name's Lindsay Riley. Each episode, we're going to be taking a closer look at news stories from around the world and at home, their social and political complexities, and often examine the way that they're covered in mainstream media. Afghanistan is in the midst of a significant humanitarian crisis. Heading into a bitter winter, more than 55% of Afghans, around nearly 23 million people, will be facing acute levels of food insecurity, um, raising fears of a potential famine on the horizon. Joining us this morning to talk about and make sense of what's happening is Vijay Prashad. He's the director of the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research, also a brilliant historian and journalist in his own right, has authored over 30 books. Vijay, thank you for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. Thanks. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be with you, yeah. Vijay, for those who don't know, what's the severity of the situation facing the people of Afghanistan right now and what is driving um, this humanitarian crisis? Well, it's hard to know where to begin. Um, The Afghan people are in the middle of winter when many of the passes uh, that go to high mountain areas or remote areas are frozen in. Uh, When the Taliban came to office or took power in Kabul in August of last year, 2021, um, foreign aid collapsed. Now, you've got to understand, foreign aid made up almost, you know, over two-thirds of the uh, budget of the Afghan government. Now, that is because they don't count the opium revenues, but let's set that aside. Um, You know, because foreign aid collapsed to almost near zero, uh, suddenly the government in Afghanistan had no money. And also, The United States government had organized for the Central Bank of Afghanistan to keep nine and a half billion dollars, its entire external reserves in New York banks, not in Kabul. So when the Taliban came in, suddenly they had no foreign aid and their own wealth was sitting in New York. U.S. government refused to hand it over, saying this money will be used to pay the survivors of the 9-11 victims. That means the people of Afghanistan are paying for something they didn't do, you know. And because there was no money in Afghanistan, there was no way to reach hastily supplies for the winter. And we now fear that half the population is near starvation. Um, That's about 27 million people, more than half, uh, are struggling to make uh, ends meet right now. Um, They think, that is the United Nations, that, you know, about a third of the population Um, is in dire straits. I mean, this is just obscene, if you get my meaning. About a million Afghans are unemployed uh, since the Taliban came to power. I mean, it's a crisis of unimaginable proportions. Nobody's talking about it. Or if they're talking about it, it's only insofar as to say, well, let's increase the aid. You don't need to increase the aid. Firstly, Afghanistan needs to get its money back. It's nine and a half billion dollars kidnapped or hijacked by the United States government. Mm. I mean, the scale of the potential destruction approaching the people of Afghanistan is kind of put into perspective. When you listen to the appeals made this month by the United Nations, they're asking for $4.4 billion in humanitarian aid, which would be the largest ever appeal for a single country um, for humanitarian assistance by the United Nations. Look, Australia is a very large and important country, played a role in the war in Afghanistan, okay? Everybody knows that. May not have played as significant a role as other countries, but it did. 
the UN is asking for $5 billion roughly overall uh, to help in Afghanistan. Let's put that in context, okay? Australian government, Mr. Morrison, just signed a deal with the United States and United Kingdom to buy nuclear submarines, so-called AUKUS deal. This is expected to cost Australia 171 billion Australian dollars or 121 billion US dollars. Okay, you just said, wow, the UN has asked for four and a half billion. In fact, by the end of it, five billion. That's the largest amount asked for humanitarian aid in a country, blah, blah, right? You just said that. Meanwhile, Australia is willing to spend 121 billion US dollars on nuclear submarines nobody needs. Because let me tell you something, no Chinese government is going to attack Australia. Okay, let's get that fantasy out of the heads. Why doesn't Australia instead use those precious resources of the Australian people to assist the Afghans so that they don't starve rather than paying the British and the Americans to buy nuclear submarines, which you don't need. You're wondering, you asked me about Afghanistan. Why are you talking about AUKUS? Well, because it's related. You know, you, you prefer to spend money on war rather than to help people in distress. That's a question that should be raised to the, the government in Canberra. You know, what kind of scam have you allowed yourself to get into with AUKUS when you should be dealing with the detritus of a war in which you participated? If you do look at the history of the United States' tools of war and foreign policy tactics, the role of economic sanctions does seem to be a regular one. So, Vijay, based on past history, how does the United States weaponize this sort of economic warfare across areas of the world that it tries to influence? You see, one of the unfortunate things is that after World War II, most of the world accepted the US dollar as essentially the currency of exchange, you know, and of, and of the um, management of wealth. People started keeping their money in dollars. And one reason this happened was that World War II devastated all our countries, okay? It devastated everybody. Nobody was as damaged as China, by the way, which fought a war from 1937 to 1949. That's the longest bout of World War II. Many countries went from 1939, you know, later than 37, but you have to start at the Marco Polo Bridge incident for the Chinese, very long World War II. Most of our world, Eurasia was destroyed, large parts of Northern Africa destroyed and so on. It was the United States far away from the action that benefited in the immediate aftermath of World War II because the institutions were still standing. You know, the dollar, the greenback was strengthened. The United States lent money to Europe during the war to fight against the Nazi scourge and so on. So the advantage the United States had entering the post-war era was that the institutions became global institutions, the dollar, um, the ways in which uh, you know, uh, um, settlements took place of trade, you know, how you paid each other. That was through the dollar, through dollar denominated instruments and so on. So we all essentially became victimized by the dollar. The moment the U.S. government turns against you, they deny you dollars. You know, that's one thing they can do. And the moment you're denied dollars, you can't do anything. If they deny you access to the SWIFT system, which is the wire transfer system based in Brussels, the Europeans will, you know, join the sanction and deny you. Like Iran was denied access to SWIFT. You have no way of paying your bills. You know, you, what are you going to do? People are going to land on the shores of Iran in Bandar Abbas and collect, you know, gunny sacks of gold or what the hell is going to happen to you, right? 
So that's the problem is that, you know, we need a multipolar financial system or at least an international financial system, not one that's international in name only. You know, the, our financial system is international, but it's totally reliant on the dollar and on the dollar denominated instruments. We need a more diverse or an international financial system so that the dollar is not used as a weapon against countries like Cuba, Venezuela. In fact, 30 plus countries in the world out of 193 are suffering US sanctions, including Russia, China, and so on. A lot of countries, Lebanon, you know, suffering. Uh, this is nuts. We have to find an alternative. Going to go to a song right now. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more with Vijay Prashad about the current crisis in Afghanistan and draw a connection back to the Afghanistan war in the 2000s. Stick around. You're on the Sunday Dispatch on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Lindsay Riley and I'm chatting right now to Vijay Prashad, historian and journalist about the current humanitarian crisis facing Afghanistan. Vijay, the United States' presence in the region of Afghanistan dates way back to the 80s. Obviously, America's military on the ground war in Afghanistan ended last year, but one could look at these current sanctions as a continuation of their own foreign policy roles in the region. Um, obviously, the Taliban are you know, a brutal regime, um, but it seems that the history of Western disruption and that through line of, you know, the constant intervention, particularly the Afghanistan war, seems to be forgotten when we're looking at the current, the conflict and the country as it is at the moment. Why is that? I mean, who destroyed the public services, you know, or who didn't yeah. build them up? I mean, the United States was the occupying power, effectively, and NATO, not only the US, but NATO as well. And as you say, Australia and so on. I mean, I just meant earlier that Australia didn't play the same role as the United States, but all these countries were the occupying powers, right? What did they do in 20 years? Nothing. You know, they didn't build up the country at all. They didn't build a sovereign state apparatus, nothing. They basically looted whatever aid went in, was taken out by contractors and so on. In fact, the don't take my word for it. The special inspector general of the Afghanistan war, it's a U.S body, SIGAR, S-I-J-A-R, Special Inspector General. The Special Inspector General's annual report shows you the level of corruption of the money that came in, you know, the trillions that came in. Now, what was the point of this war? It just, it enriched war profiteers, didn't help the Afghans. The Taliban comes back into power and there's no institutions there. Now, who is to blame for that? You can't blame the Taliban. 20 years, Hamid Karzai was the president. 20 years, Ashraf Ghani was the president. Ashraf Ghani, former World Bank official. What's going on, fellas? Take responsibility for the mess you made, right? What did they always say? American politicians love talking like this. You know, what does a parent say to a child who broke a vase? You know, fix the vase or whatever. You know, you broke it, you bought it. All those kind of statements, you know. You broke it, you bought it. I'm not saying the US should permanently occupy Afghanistan. At least open the floodgates to that 9.5 billion, which is the Afghan people's own money, and then pay up for the destruction. What did you do? Forget Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. What were the, what were the Americans doing in the great prisons of Kabul, where they held 
you know, Afghan prisoners illegally. And then so many Afghans were brought to Guantanamo. Pay up. Pay up for destroying that country, bombing it to smithereens. Let's see some real justice in the world. It is interesting to see the way that discourse about the need for the current aid in Afghanistan has been framed, you know, in media and also the way that um, Western governments talk about the sanctions. The notion that, well, of course, we, you know, we have to freeze these assets to the Taliban. They're a despotic regime, a terrorist group. Of course, we can't cooperate with them. And it seems to almost rely on some sort of idea that the Taliban don't care about millions of people in their country dying, you know, so the aid wouldn't even be spent well on them. I mean, to me, the idea that any ruling regime, however despotic they may be, would want large parts of their population to be wiped out, you know, up to 20 million people seems absurd, right? But that this is the notion that seems to underpin these sanctions and withholding of funds at the moment. Well, look, firstly, it's not true because for the last 10 years, the Taliban had an office in Doha and Qatar. I visited that office. I met Taliban officials there. Um, United States was talking to the Taliban in Doha, Qatar for the last 10 years. Zalme Khalilzad was the U.S. envoy to, in fact, talk to the Taliban right through this period. You know, United States didn't stop talking to them in Qatar under the auspices of the Qatari Emirate. Uh, so you talk to them for the last 10 years. Why can't you talk to them now? What's the problem? You see what the problem is, the United States was embarrassed by the fact that it was defeated by the Taliban. And now they are punishing the Taliban and as a consequence, punishing the Afghan people, you know. But it's not true that they didn't negotiate with terrorists or talk to the Taliban. It's not true. It's just factually incorrect. You talk to them in the souks of Doha, Qatar, where they had an open office with a signpost outside said Taliban. You know, it actually said Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan because they claimed to be the government. Um, but the U.S. was talking to them then. Now you have been humiliated, you know, and you don't. So you're punishing them. Uh, it's not true. I mean, if the United States today says we are withholding the money because we want to punish the people that defeated us in the battlefields of Afghanistan, at least that's honest. If they're saying we don't want to give the money because we don't negotiate with terrorists, that's nonsense. To finish up, VJ, this is a looming humanitarian crisis of almost incomprehensible levels. We're talking, you know, more than 20 million people um, facing famine. VJ, if nothing happens, what is the potential scale of destruction facing the people of Afghanistan? It's very hard to say. When we say that one in two people in Afghanistan is starving, that doesn't mean they'll die. But it, I'm telling you what's going to happen. Within five years, if we start measuring nutrition levels, you're going to see the height falling of the people. You're going to see them losing weight. You're going to see more uh, lower birth rates. You're going to see lots of different kind of medical problems. I mean, this is a long-term crisis. Starvation doesn't necessarily immediately lead to mass death, but it leads to serious cultural deprivation. You know, people get hungry, literacy rates will, will decline and so on. And that's what you're going to see. That's fodder. Let me tell you, that's fodder for all kinds of crazy reactionary right wing kind of forces to emerge again, you know, for ISIS to grow and so on. I mean, the antidote for Afghanistan right now is not from the West. The antidote is from the Central Asian states, Iran, China, India, Pakistan. All of them are sending aid to Afghanistan. And I'm hoping that this material aid, you know, trains coming across the border, buses coming from Kazakhstan with aid, I'm hoping this is going to save the day. And in fact, that's where I focus my attention. We're not asking the US to do anything. It's useless. 
We want the Iranians, the Chinese, the Indians, Pakistanis to send immediate material aid, send the trucks across the border, and they are. They are. They are sending it. It's not getting reported, but it is traveling. The only people who are capable of sending aid are not the West. We've been talking to historian and journalist Vijay Prashad about the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Vijay, thank you for joining us this morning on the Sunday Dispatch. And where can listeners follow you to learn more about the situation or find any more of your work? I write for a syndicated wire service called Globetrotter. And I know that our pieces appear in New Zealand and Australia and so on. You just Google Globetrotter, you'll find us. Um, in a few months, uh, I'm going to have a book that I've written with Noam Chomsky called The Withdrawal, which is about the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. And I really hope people will read it. Thank you, Vijay. Thanks a lot. <laughs>